Welcome to Educate to Self-Regulate, a podcast for educational leaders, teachers, and students, where in less than 20 minutes, we unpack educational research to support you and your students to become better learners. Hello, Rory. Hello, Shai. How are you? I'm good, mate. How are you back in Melbourne? Yeah, back after a four-week holiday. I've been back at school for a few days and it feels like I haven't left set all these great intentions and three days after being back at school and I feel like I'm not doing as well as I hoped I would let's put it like that oh gosh I can empathize with that on so many levels because I remember always having that time off and just having the space and the clarity of thinking to be able to plan out how you want your future term to manifest and then a lot of visualization yeah. about what you think it's going to be like <laughs> And then, yeah, two days in, it's all up in the air again and you're back on the mouse wheel. Yeah, and you're just falling back into your old habits. It's easy to fall into survival mode when you've got so many different competing priorities. Um, But that is the nature of school because there's so many different facets to it and all of them kind of need to be catered for. And there's just so many things that are impossible to control. Yeah, I have to admit, that's something that's always kind of fascinated me about schools is that we go through these cycles even like a report writing time every year same time teachers are highly stressed we're stretched very thin and yet it happens every year and when I was full-time in schools I was like how we all acknowledge this problem and yet it happens it doesn't change and then the next semester it happens again I wonder if there's something about the nature of how many things that there is to cater for in the here and the now, that it's difficult to be proactive about making changes in the future because you need time and space to be able to really set up the systems for that to take place. But in the moment, there's always competing priorities that are higher up the list than that thing. Yes. I think as a teacher, because there's so many things pulling at our attention, in the course of the day, we're jumping from task to task to email to student conversation to teacher conversation. Our it's highly attention. reactionary. Yeah. We set up from, from the outset in a very reactive way. I was reading about a concept of attention residue. When you move your attention from one task to the next, you're leaving a portion of your attention on that initial task. And so yeah. your attention essentially is dwindling. Now, I don't know where I sit on this concept that I've been reading about, but perhaps there's value in that and thinking about the way we protect our attention as teachers, isn't it? Something um, to ponder. All right, so let's kick off the conversation. Last week, a lot of our conversation with Brendan Lee, we were pondering how do we identify student motivation? And a lot of our discussion was around the connections that we make and having conversations and spending time with students. And one thing to do today was to dig deeper into those conversations and try to understand exactly how in a conversation we can identify student motivation. Like, are there strategies that we can use? And you've used this term before that I thought was really interesting and I've never heard, which was that as teachers, we are belief miners. And I'd love you to expand on that a little bit for me and for the listeners. So a belief minor for me, I guess it's a concept that as I was slowly starting to understand the science of motivation over the last five years, I identified that there were a series of beliefs 
that we as learners hold that influence our motivation. So often as teachers, we've said it before, motivation manifests as overt behaviors. And that's what we see. We observe behavior and we make a decision about whether or not a student is motivated. But that behavior is influenced by a set of beliefs that we hold. And those beliefs are actually, if you think of the iceberg metaphor, beliefs sit below the surface. We don't see them. We only see the behavior or the language and we make inferences from that behavior and that language. And so this idea of those beliefs sitting below the surface, I had been thinking about, well, hold on, there is research and argument for the need to make those what we call tacit or implicit beliefs because they sit below the surface, to make them explicit before we can do anything with them. And so this idea of belief mining is simply our role is to dig up the beliefs from below the surface and make them semi-tangible. This is an assumption on my part. I don't think that many students would be aware of the beliefs that they actually have about themselves in regards to their learning, they might be aware of some, but it's only if as a teacher, you start to dig that you can bring things into conscious reality through maybe having a conversation. I think actually many adults don't have knowledge or awareness of those different beliefs that are influencing our learning or our approach to learning. And so without that awareness of those beliefs, we can't really do anything about them. It's hard to regulate something that you don't know exists. Yeah. And I think like throughout my, like the studying that I've done in this area, self-regulated learning, motivation has been probably the most interesting area for me. And whenever I think about students in my class, no, no matter how much planning I do, no matter how knowledgeable I am about the curriculum, how exciting or interesting a lesson is, if you've got a person or a group of people in your class that are coming to the lesson with restrictive beliefs about how well they can do, like it really doesn't matter what, what you have done to try to achieve success on the other side. They, those beliefs they have, it's almost like an anchor tied around their waist that means that they're moving slower or maybe not moving at all or maybe getting dragged down even further in terms of their academic achievement. And so as teachers, if that is the case, surely part of our job is to try to help them with those beliefs make them conscious and try to challenge them. That could be a really impactful way to increase the achievement that is not necessarily to do with your content knowledge or your curriculum planning or even the excitement or the engagement in your lesson. I really like that the metaphor of an anchor or an invisible barrier. Yeah. If we don't intervene if we don't break through that barrier or help them break through that barrier themselves. That's going to continue to influence their achievement for for a very long time and i'm sure that most people most teachers have had one of those moments where a student has achieved something in their class that they actually didn't believe they were capable of doing and how it completely changes their view of themselves and that can really change a student's whole view of themselves as a learner and can be a real springboard for further achievement and so that can come about through that shift in beliefs if you can make the shift in belief happen i think those are the moments that we should be striving for in education i think it's you know whether you call them aha moments or pivotal moments i think those are the moments where the learner is getting a shift in in their identity as a learner that is gonna have a longer lasting effect 
and the content in that moment because the content is changing. Like knowledge is changing at a rapid rate, but our identity as a learner, well, that's something that will last us a lifetime really. Yeah. And if you can evolve that and you can improve that, you know, someone's view of themselves as a learner, like that is forever. So if we're talking about the beliefs that a person can have that can impact their motivation, what would you say are some of the most influential ones or things that teachers might need to know about? Yeah, so there is a range of beliefs and I don't have the all-inclusive list because I yeah. think that there's many more that I too am still learning about. Yeah. But, you know, perhaps the common ones, so if we think about what what is common or popular language in schools, take mindset, for example. Yep. Mindset as a, a popular concept actually stems from a theory called beliefs about intelligence yeah so it's a learner's belief about intelligence whether that's incremental or growing uh, or it's an entity which is it's fixed and that's that's one belief that a a learner might hold we've spoken about self-efficacy which is a belief about our ability to execute a certain set of behaviors yeah we've even spoken about when we were talking about goal setting we spoke about performance versus mastery goals but actually that's an orientation towards being geared towards performance or being geared towards mastery of the skill set or the technique. Growth and learning. Yeah. And so orientation is a belief. And then there's beliefs about value and interest. Do we see a utility in this or usefulness in this? There's beliefs about what we expect the outcome to be. So, you know, what we would call outcome expectations. I know you have real interest in the attribution theory or attributions, the way we explain success or failure. Yeah, and that in itself is a belief as well, right? Yeah, that was a really interesting one to me as I was learning, as I was making my way through my studies, that attributions uh, or attribution theory is related to the decisions that somebody makes about their success or failure in a, a learning experience, post-learning experience. And the way that they make those decisions, there's a variety of different components to attribution theory like something like intelligence if they attribute it to intelligence or ability that is something that's stable it's internal and you don't really have a lot of control essentially over your intelligence and that can be a helpful attribution in some instances but it can be an unhelpful attribution in other instances and that can then impact your motivation in like future learning experiences that you go into if you feel like you don't have the intelligence to be successful. I thought that was really interesting because most of the things that we're talking about in terms of motivational theories are or beliefs are beliefs before the learning takes place, but attributional beliefs actually form post-learning and they can influence learning that's going to happen at a later date. And so one of the teacher's job is to help students, whether they've been successful or whether they've been unsuccessful in a learning experience, is to make the right attributions. So that, for example, if you're unsuccessful, that you might attribute that to something that's not so stable like intelligence, but maybe it's to do with how you spend your time or learning strategies that can be changed, that can be improved. And therefore, the belief could be that you can be successful at a later date with the changes that are made. And, and that's a lovely connection to this idea of belief mining. If we take attributions as a belief in itself, helping students become aware of the types of attributions and then how they explain success and failure, and then helping them make better attributions 
Yep. That is essentially you're making a belief. What is an implicit belief, explicit, and yeah. then you're intervening with it, you're actually helping them change it to make it more productive for learning. That's one of the challenges is like, how can you do it in a, in a way that's meaningful to students? Uh, I know that like in primary school, one of the things that, you know, a lot of primary schools have done a lot of work around growth mindset. And there's actually curriculums out there that I know of, like the Think Plus curriculum is one that we use in Victoria. It might even be Australia wide. And they teach things like the introductions to neuroplasticity, where you are actually teaching students about how your brain changes when you engage in challenges and how the neural pathways change. And that is essentially how you learn new things, how you become better at things. And that demystifying of learning is actually a way to, I believe, help students shape beliefs that they can learn because they know how learning then happens. Or other things that we've done in the past or that I have done in the past is tapping into challenges, trying to do some structured reflection around what happens in your body when you're challenged and what happens in your brain when you're challenged. So you might have some physiological responses, but you might have also some self-talk around whether or not you can be successful, whether or not you want to continue, whether or not you want to try a new strategy or not. But then bringing those beliefs to conscious attention is a way to then do extra teaching around reframing those things, which I find to be really helpful because you can refer back to that at later dates. It could be a week away, a month away. When someone's struggling, you can refer back to those lessons and say, tell me about what we learned. And then that gives students the toolkit to be able to work through some of those limiting beliefs. That is, in essence, explicit instruction about some of these concepts. You know, you're explicitly teaching these concepts. You get, you're explicitly prompting the students to reflect on where they sit with this, and then you're revisiting this throughout the learning period or different learning phases. And so that is, based on the literature, highly effective and evidence-informed. It's, it's, it's really enjoyable for the students as well because they don't see it as the stereotypical learning that happens at school. And it's something that they can take away and apply in sports or apply when they're playing their musical instrument. It can be applied anywhere that learning takes place. And as you and I know, Shai, most things in life can be boiled down to a learning problem. Learning happens everywhere, not just at school, which is the perfect segue to our favorite segment of the podcast on the reg. Sweet. So... Rory, very keen to hear how you are applying and connecting this theory to your everyday life in terms of belief mining. All right. So I haven't been doing a lot of my own belief mining of late in the past week or two. Whenever I was thinking about what to share on the reg, the thing that came to my mind was actually the belief mining that I do with my partner. She's currently undertaking an MBA and without doubt, I would say it's probably one of the most challenging things that I have seen someone do in terms of time commitment, in terms of energy investment, and in terms of the learning challenge that's actually required. And she's been sharing her ideas with me about how she's feeling with regards to her learning. And she's talking about how she doesn't think that she can do it, that she's feeling really stressed, really anxious. And I've asked, well, what is it about the task or the, the project that you're doing that you feel anxious about. And by asking questions and digging deeper and doing the belief mining, it became apparent to me that the fact that it was a group task and the fact that 
she had to do part of a group task and share it with the rest of the group. That was actually something that was really worrying her because there's judgment involved there and it becomes performance-based rather than mastery-based, which is something you were talking about earlier on. And then I asked her to think carefully about why she was doing the MBA because she wants to improve. Like she wants to develop herself as a person. She wants to develop the professional knowledge to be better at her job. And by doing that, by having that conversation, she started to adopt a bit more of a mastery approach. And she told me that that was something that really helped her. It was a shift in beliefs. It can be really easy for to look at the negative aspects of a task and think about performance and think about the judgment and think about the mark. But a bit of belief mining managed to, managed to help her out. It shows how some of these concepts we translate into our relationships as well. And I would say it improves the quality of the conversations that we have with our partners, but on, on multiple levels for us to be able to, to draw in some of this and then to talk about it or discuss it and say like, you know, does this fit or how much? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really novel conversation for her and I to have because she's only been doing the study for six months and it's very different to a lot of the other things that we would talk about normally. Yeah. And so just that's a, a different dynamic to your relationship. What about you? Of, yeah. As an extension of what you were sharing from a relationship perspective, I was actually at the playground with a fellow parent recently. And I remember seeing my friend's door climbing a, those chain ladders that kids climb up and the daughter was climbing up. I was pretty close by and, and the dad made a comment and we'll just call this, this little girl, Josie for the sake okay. of this example. So yeah. Josie, you can't do that. You know, you're going to fall. Don't do that. Like, yeah. That was more or less the comment, right? It was something along those yeah. lines. And instantly my brain registers that comment. That's, I know that was coming from a good intention, which was- of protection. Safety, yeah. Was, yeah, protection yeah. and safety of, of his daughter. But the, the damage that that comment could have for that child's belief. And so here we go. We talk about belief mining, but- if we backtrack and we think about how these beliefs form in form. the first place, yeah, yeah. here we've got a child who is seeking challenge, is taking a risk, and the adult advice has been, you can't do that. You're going to fall. Don't do it. Mm. And in that moment, that belief that is starting to form for this child is, is potentially a low self-efficacy for risk-taking, a low self-efficacy for challenge, and perhaps even a low self-efficacy for navigating physical spaces mm. like a playground. And what is what impact is that going to have for that child moving forward when they're in similar situations? Are they going to seek that challenge and, and therefore stretch themselves and learn? And like what a hard, that thought probably only popped into your head because of your knowledge of learning. And so many, like how many parents there are in the world and they have this great responsibility and I'm not a parent, so I feel like sometimes it's hard for me to talk about this, but parents have a responsibility for shaping their son or daughter's beliefs about learning that they probably don't even know that they have. They're just trying to do the best job that they possibly can and keep their child safe. And that's something that I've thought about a lot being in schools, because ultimately you have lots of different students in your class, but not all of their beliefs are formed in the classroom, but their beliefs definitely impact their what's the word their engagement in the classroom and their motivation in the classroom maybe we need another episode to talk about beliefs yeah. and how they're formed 
Yeah, and then the role, I guess, you know, the multiple kind of variables that influence those. The contributors to those beliefs. Kind of family environments, but also yeah. the, the classroom environment as well. But as always, conscious of time, Rory. Indeed. Um, if you are a new listener to the podcast, make sure you share it with friends, save it or subscribe. And if you have any questions, and we really want to hear from our listeners, if you have any questions or comments, send us a DM through either of our social media channels, which is Twitter and Instagram at Ed to self reg. And I think that's us for the episode, Shy. Um, and as always, to you and everyone else out there, keep regulating.